Welcome back to Hearness, Contemporary Art Practices for Connecting Body, Place and Space. At Hearness, we acknowledge the deep connection to land and waters by First Nations people all around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Breen Lovett, and this month we are so pleased to have spoken to David Haynes and Joyce Hinterding. Haynes and Hinterding are acclaimed contemporary artists based in the Blue Mountains, Australia, on Gundungurra and Darrow country. Haynes and Hinterding have a most fascinating practice covering everything from aesthetics, antennas, aromas and esoterics. And although the knowledge for their work comes from a scientific basis, they say it's a mere pathway towards an aesthetic outcome. All references that we discuss on the show can be found on hearness.org and sound works for this month's episode are by Haynes and Hinterding. The longer piece you'll hear at the end is called Electromagnetic Compositions for Buildings, Plants and Stars, and it's from the B-side of their vinyl record release, Rec Energies 2015. The piece we will listen to now is a short extract from the Grounding Ungrounding Pagoda section, which we will speak about in detail during the podcast. don't know where to begin your work is so expansive and it really covers so many areas that I want to talk about I was thinking that we could begin by talking about the grounding ungrounding video of your field work where you're using these very low frequency antennas to pick up the natural electromagnetic forces um, of rocks and the landscape especially in your canyoning Um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, living in the mountains and your experience when you're making these works, going into those canyons and doing those recordings. What does that feel like? Well, of course, the the history up here is ancient. It goes back to into the deep time of um, our First Nations people who travelled this country and lived within it and had a very intensely spiritual relationship to it. In terms of European settlement, um, you know, there's historical tradition of exploration and bushwalking as well. So, you know, you can be in that landscape in all kinds of ways. And so we really started to meld um, our desire to, to bushwalk and explore the country. But for us, it was about, um, you know, a very active, close listening and a sort of uncovering of, of things which 
normally, you know, you don't have access to. And in fact, part of the power and the imagination of um, that comes from walking in that environment is this notion that um, you can be within it and you can immerse yourself in it, but you can never really, really know it. You know, there's something about the landscape that pushes you back all the time because it's very compact, very difficult country to be in. It's full of big um, rock faces and cliffs. And so, you know, all our training in aesthetics and the sublime also really comes into play at that point because you're really living um, Kant's philosophy or his observations. Um, you're really living it as lived experience that's happening to you. I think that um, there's something in those works that's a, a, a about the technology and the nature. And that's, I think, one of the critical points. I think some time ago, I sort of realised that we thought we'd invented electricity, but that in fact, um, you know, the electromagnetic environment surrounds us and that was already there. And this question about energy and potential difference and how energy is stored and how it travels and how it moves through things or how it's conducting and transmitting and things like that. And I guess one of the critical questions that the grounding ungrounding um, addresses is the idea, I think, that we, we tend to think that all of the radio and electromagnetic energy exists in the air. But of course it doesn't. But it is inside of everything. So that, that sort of begs another question, which is around, are things active? Are they doing something? <laughs> Mm. Is there something going on that we haven't worked out? Is there, is there kind of, a, I guess, some kind of natural technology that we hadn't recognised yet, you know? So I think inside of that, we started to poke around in a way. I mean, this really comes from um, building antenna. So I've been building a an, uh, custom-made antenna for a very long time and listening to the very low-frequency part of the radio spectrum, which is characterized by what's called natural radio. It's basically <clears throat> a very noisy part of the radio spectrum that crackles and pops and um, these are called spherics. And this is the sun's interaction with the Earth's atmosphere. The other thing about the antennas I, I've sort of learnt over the years of building them is that uh, they're very robust you can really mess around with the shapes. And um, we, again, we tend to think that, you know, technology is mathematically defined. And, and certainly if you want to listen to AM radio, you probably need an antenna that's tuned to AM radio. But if you just want to find out what, you know, a particular piece of wire or something is actually receiving, you can just plug it in and listen to it. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. So, so on that kind of basis, we've started to listen to sort of weird things. And the pagodas are a particularly unique structure. They're unique in the world, um, the gardens of stone. And, and, they, and they, I mean, and superficially on the surface, you look at them on the outside and they look like a certain kind of antenna. And so in that sense, there was a little bit of a leap um in in that we just you know Joyce is like I think they're antennas I wonder what they're resonating with 
and then we just had to like make that part of our bushwalking so we went out there and plugged one in took and a little while to work out maybe what where, mm. where to plug it in <laughs> like how do you plug in a, a rock a big rock mm -hmm. formation that's got i mean basically it it is a, a multi-element array and um <laughs> so it is you know it's like a classic logarithmic tv antenna you know one like you see on top of your houses it's got like a, a long element then which is a reflective element then it's got another element which is the receiving element and then it's got all these waveguides that sit in front of it which are ironstone bands yeah a very highly conductive rock well that's what the tv antenna that sits on your house looks like but um mm. i i did a little bit of work with a uh, uh, an antenna scientist and um, we were talking about drawing pictures of antennas and I asked him to draw an antenna that would receive television because I like the idea of that you could receive pictures through a picture and um, he came back with a drawing that sort of totally challenged what I thought of how I thought those um, multi-element tv antennas worked I you know I always thought that you know they were all connected, but in fact, they're not. <laughs> they're not connected. So that when you see a, a TV antenna that sits on top of a house, the back element, which is along the longest bit of it, is not connected to all the other bits. Those other bit, they're all just waveguides. So they're all just guiding the wave and there's only one bit of it that's connected. So that really uh, set, set us up We've been kind of connecting um, a radio scanner into the rock through with conductive gel. So we could get like a really big kind of area of contact and just, you know, on in different parts of it. And then listening and then scanning through all the radio frequencies to see if there was anything interesting, to see if we could perceive anything. And um, surprisingly, we did. When I was watching you, Joyce, on the with the sound and the big rock right in front of you, and you were you could see the frequencies of the sounds that you were hearing. I mean, it's a fabulous video, really, and and works. But um, when I was watching you, I was thinking, what's she feeling? Like, do does that the vibration of hearing that back? Does that affect your your body and your kind of senses as well? I think you. Um you go into a very acute listening space with that. I think there's there's a sense of discovery and you feel like that you, it's hard to stop listening, even though um, in sometimes it's really just a texture that you're listening to, but the possibility that the texture might change. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, a, I was always a big fan of SETI, you know, the search for extraterrestrials. You know, that, that thing about, you know, that suddenly there may be some coherence in uh, the noise. in the noise, yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, you're kind of listening for this, mm. but you become immersed in it. Yeah, it's kind and, of... Um, you know, we've done other ones, like we tried a termite's mound. Um, we, we put probes in the canyon. You know, those canyons are really funny places. They're, they're often places that people move through. Like they walk through them or swim through them slowly, but they don't often hang around and do things in there. Um, they're cold. <laughs> they're cold and dark and all the rest of it. But, you know, so when we went down to the canyon, we didn't know what was going to happen. 
Um, but we very quickly discovered um, the orientation of the ley lines that, um, that pass through it. You know, that, that sort of technology is used in mining all the time. So this is not esoteric discovery. It's actually has real world sort of practical application in terms of how the earth is pulled apart by people. Um, and so like with all of these things, the other side of it, I suppose, and, and it's really not necessarily a romantic notion, but there's a kind of intimacy with the earth and its surroundings. And, um, you know, we've, we've spent 20 years really feeling the idea that the sun is caressing the ionosphere. And, and you know, and then and we've had a bit of a sideline in Reichian, um, an interest in Wilhelm Reich. You know, we're not worshippers of Reich, but Reich was very interesting because Reich connected all of these notions of energy and intimacy and even sexuality with things like the weather. And so, you know, naturally in that sort of thinking, as mad as it is, there's this sort of, you know, human scale and world scale, cosmos scale stuff going on. And an antenna will teach you that scale doesn't matter because we can wind up with the right kind of set of um, wound coils. We can hear energy traveling around the magnetic field lines of the earth in real time. And so um, notions of scale seem very almost prosaic, you know, or, or kind of quaint in some ways. Like once you see the world through the electromagnetic, everything changes because, you know, there's five forces, four forces, you know, electromagnetism, strong nuclear, weak nuclear gravity, and then probably Higgs boson, given what's happening at the Large Hadron Collider. And then there will be other forces that we have yet to understand. So I'll add that into the equation. But generally speaking, everything belongs to that realm of those four forces. So everything we touch, everything we encounter is a question of energy rather than any kind of solid structure that, or conventional structure that we, that we know about. And in fact, so this notion of intimacy becomes very strange and powerful because um, I'm not really touching the book at the moment. <laughs> it's a set of forces interacting in a field and so, yeah, you know, there are questions of physics there, but really for us, it's driven by the aesthetic possibilities. So that's what we privilege there. Um, and we're really interested in the aesthetic um, side of our work and how it can present itself. And then the things that people can get from it. You know, I did a um, hydrogen alpha um, solar workshop with a bunch of blind people. Now that was mind blowing because they're just relying on the powers of other senses to understand what it was that they were having contact mm. with. But it was a really powerful experience. And they love Joyce's drawings because they can touch it. I just wanted to go back to um, listening to the telluric currents in the canyon. So when the sun shines, it's basically electrons arriving uh, photons, uh, you know, so we've electrically charged uh, energy. Energy arrives and it has to go somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sort of charges the planet. And I mean, it's part of our kind of 
um, cycle that we, we have lightning, we have energetic exchange between the earth and the sky and we get charged and discharged and we're in a very dynamic electro electrical state. During the day, those uh, currents, the, the energy from the sun moves through the earth and it moves to the, it moves to the equator. So it, moves, it moves up and down. And they, they're the telluric currents. They run under the earth. And then at night, they run down to the poles. So they switch around at night. We were thinking about how you could experience that. And we went down into the canyon and the canyons run east, west and north, yeah, south. Yeah, so the horizontal ones run east, west and the vertical ones run north, south. So that's an interesting thing. Yeah, so yeah. anyway, we're in a canyon and we're, and we're putting um, metal probes into the water. Now, normally you think, oh, that's water, you know, like if you, you can't listen to radio energy in water in water but the really amazing thing was is that what you could hear was the vlf in the water and it was stronger going, in one direction um north south yeah it was stronger, across the field it was a stronger north south than it mm, was east, east west. west so we were yeah so we really we tested that a lot and we've got beautiful recordings now of um, the VLF, as it uh, is sitting, uh, I guess, as it appears in inside the earth, that work also comes, is, uh, is somewhat inspired by um, René Dumas' book, Mount Analogue, on non-Euclidean mountain climbing. Now, Euclid, um, I forget which postulate it is, Anyway, Euclid comes up with a postulate which he says no two parallel lines could ever meet. Non-Euclidean mathematics is the mathematics of curves because, of, cur of course, curves, once you start to do geometry on curves, um, the lines meet, so they'll meet at the poles or, the, you know, et cetera. And so all of uh, the mathematics around spheres and um, space and space is now curved, um, is all non-Euclidean mathematics. And so we were really sort of thinking, and, and of course, out of this comes the fourth and the fifth dimension. This is like from this time, this mathematics. And um, it's really interesting in thinking about all of that stuff around, I guess, rocks and water. Yeah, so if our <laughs> practice of walking is like, if if we if if an artist takes up bushwalking, you know the artist is going to be the person who does the non-Euclidean version of bushwalking, <laughs> and and you know which is which is really like that that uh, leap into the irrational. It's not really irrational is quite a judgmental word, but it's that leap of faith where you go. Well, when we go bushwalking today, let's try to listen to inside the earth. No, it's a practice um, or a practice, if you like. Um, and, um, you know, Joyce and I climbed um, a pagoda, you know, to be able to listen to it um, and hear what it might be saying. <laughs> and, um, and for me, that's, that's just such a, such a much more interesting way to be in that environment than to be out there conquering 
mountains in the traditional sense, planting flags. Um, you know, like I guess flat painting a flag is a kind of artistic act, but it, it seems very impoverished against being able to listen to how that piece of rock is resonating um, in sympathy with the Milky Way. So a lot of this stuff is like energy that's coming from, um, you know, the wider cosmos. And it, of course, it helps you reevaluate um, a notion of what the earth is. You know, um, the grounding and the ungrounding is quite telltale in that sense. We're sort of trying to unground the earth well, the Earth is kind of, un, you know, we have this, again, it's one of these well, the kind of... the moon's ungrounded. There's no electricity on the moon. One of these assumptions that, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're grounded if you're standing on the Earth, you know, yeah. because electrical energy will ground through you yeah. or rise up through you or whatever, whichever way it goes. But, in fact, what we've kind of, I guess, found in our little experiments is that it's it's the earth is not necessarily the ground you know the electricity it comes into your house through the pole on the outside and it goes out through your water pipes and if your house wasn't connected to the ground through the water pipes if you were if you got bad earth on your house the electricity won't work because it can't go back into the earth it's kind of strange. I mean, I feel like it's one of those things again. Like we don't necessarily understand electricity, or we don't we don't really have very good understanding of energy in general. You know, so the more you kind of play around with it, the more messy it gets because you have to really think about your assumptions, and your assumptions aren't. Once well, you question the assumption you find yourself in quite tricky kind of territory. Science doesn't understand electricity. That's a bold statement. No, well, it, I mean, it does. <laughs> I mean, it, it, we understand enough about electricity to be able to harness it in all kinds of powerful ways. But, uh, but as a phenomena, it's not really understood. Well, I've got so many questions, but let's just start with when you're listening to the rock. So the sound is from the rock. Is coming from the sun going through the rock and back out again, or is it coming from the rock as a source in itself, or, or is it impossible to separate that because everything's the energy of everything is so intermeshed? The reality is, is that it's not necessarily traveling in any direction. It's become active. It's active. It's just. Uh, it's become. It's like an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> it's an orgasm. It just happens, right? <laughs> Well, that I mean, that go links back to the work, the orgasm work or exhibition you had at Breen Space and the cloud busters that you made, and then the Wilhelm Reich's kind of ideas around um, was it the orgone, this kind of energy that exists in the atmosphere. And I understand there's different understandings of what orgone is. Um, do you have your own understanding or definition of what the way you work with these ideas? Um, yeah, so I mean, I think we probably um, accept that organ might not exist. Well, it's not up there in the physics department as the sixth state of matter, put it that way. When we did build working cloudbusters, we made it rain for five days <laughs> torrentially in an area out. So, so like, I don't know what that is. That's some kind of esoteric intuition or um, synchronicity or a coincidence 
whatever it was, it was enough to freak us out and never turn them on again. And orgasm, you know, like an artist project would explore that force, those sensual forces in the most um, incongruous ways. So, you know, aesthetically the, the work, the exhibition was incredibly cold. I mean, if there were orgasms there, they were orgasms made by aliens. To get to these works, we did etchings of um, energy flows. We did, um, we built the cloud busters accurately from Reich's original designs, you know, and, and we did the um, electrostatically charged pigment works where we, we um, pushed a whole lot of pigment around with um, electromag high voltage electricity and you know what's really interesting about that is the way that um, if you if you push a charge at a field of pigment like that it's um, it's a it's a serious force in um, a very undifferentiated space and what it does is it creates structure and so you have noise and resonance and when you have noise and resonance things come into being and so we saw in those things, islands of stability and river deltas and all of these things that um, natural forces do all the time in the world. And, um, and so noise is a really um, important part of our, it's like the ground <laughs> in our work in a way because, because noise is the protein material of the universe. And then things happen to it and, um, and um, things like stochastic resonance, suddenly structure and um, what we call order emerges out of that open field. Um, the aesthetic charge is as much as the, as the charge of the VLF or whatever. Mm -hmm. To the viewer and, the, and their senses. So because it appeals so much to the senses, the intellectual critical faculty just disappears I think for me, I think our work is at its best when it's when it's giving people an experience that allows them to be critically minded to a certain extent, but then for that to melt away, melt away into their actual experience. I mean, I guess that's um, really evident in the the carbon conductive drawings, Joyce, that you've been doing for a really long time as well as a kind of starting point to that multi-sensory interaction. But I think on, on Simple Forces 2013 at Breen Space, it specifically addresses that you're exploring these four fundamental forces as the heart of existence. I think the world is really complicated. We live in a very sophisticated world and um, a lot of that, that, that stuff's incredibly simple. There's a kind of simplification of, of things. Yeah, aesthetics does that like through its formalism, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, like even mm. the to call have called it simple forces mm. was to say a lot of the really early experiments, like from Volta and from Faraday and from from the history of electricity, they're fabulous experiments and they're fabulous principles that are put into play. And so a lot of those works are really just looking with those, working with those very very simple principles. I mean the graphite uh, on paper is um, something that I discovered from reading a children's book on electronics. <laughs> I, was, I was teaching electronics and I bought, you know, I was, when you, I think when you teach things, you often look for nice, simple ways to explain things to people who've never encountered it. And I bought a, a children's book and had an experiment in it, which was take a pencil and 
um, draw a line and then use a multimeter and test its conductivity. And um, yeah, that, that was it. I was like, it's <laughs> like, oh my God, <laughs> how come I've never seen anyone do this before? It's amazing because I think there's a great photograph of one of your earliest earlier works in this on the website that actually show you can see the electricity going across the drawing. Oh, when she plugged it into the... Yeah. Um, she, yeah. plugged, she plugged the drawing into the power socket, um, um, which shouldn't be done really by anyone without a fire extinguisher. But yeah, um, no, well, it's very conductive. This, the simple forces work uses um, induction. The electromagnetic energy in the air is in, induced into the coil and you can add your energy into it and that makes it louder. Doesn't change it, just makes it louder. When you go to art school, you don't necessarily learn about the conductivity of the materials that you're working with. And you wouldn't necessarily think that you could use them in any way, but there's so little dialogue around energy that's accessible. I mean, the other thing was, is that, you know, artwork you're not supposed to touch. And suddenly we've got people with graphite on their hands walking around the gallery and, I went to, um, had a, I was in the graphite exhibition in Indianapolis, in the Indianapolis uh, Museum. And um, I, I had to sign a, um, a document that basically said that, the pay, that my work would not come back looking the same as it, as it arrived. And because that's all those condition reports that you have with, with artworks, that they should look exactly the same when they leave. But instead, so these things were like black at the end because, and people had done drawings on them. They'd, they'd got their fingers into the graphite. Someone had been drawing other electronic components. Someone had been drawing diodes and must have been explaining to someone else how it worked. Anyway, it was very, it was very, very funny because it, they, I think that there's something as simple as touching it um, provokes the imagination and gives you a very immediate kind of experience of the veracity. So you know that's, yes, that's got energy in it, definitely. I touched it. I made it loud by touching it. <laughs> um, and some people make it sound a little bit quite different, which I can't explain. That's interesting. I think, it, I think like you're talking about the popularity of your works as is that it opens that possibility, even though you're saying this is all very simple stuff, because there's been a lack of dialogue and, and get, um, accessibility to it with people's senses. You know, it's mind-blowing for people because it allows this kind of transcendence of what the everyday is into other, you know, electromagnetic realms and forces and things. So you suddenly become aware of everything in a much deeper you know, an engaged way and yourself as part of that too. So, um, so potent. There's a work, I don't know if you heard of Siegfried Ebling at the Bauhaus in the 20s. So there was a kind of line of thought and thinking around the importance of energy on our domestic environment um, and being aware of that energy exchange through the ground, through the air. And he's got a great book called The Space of um, Membrane. Um, but it's really was a whole shutting down of that way of thinking at the time when the esoterics kind of got kicked out of the Bauhaus as well, 
like the Gertrude Grenau and Johanna Sitten that were like into sensing energy with the body. Um, and that, you know, it's such a huge loss for the advancement of architecture and, and art, but specifically architecture, these environments we live in and people just spend all this time trying to make it, you know, sealed from the outside and not open or engaging with these forces. Like these people in the 20s were talking about solar power from everywhere on the whole surface of the house, do you know? And look how long it's taken us to catch up because that all got shut off as, you know, too esoteric. But really it was a science that couldn't be explained yet. Because um, I know you designed your own house and that's a whole other whole nother journey. I don't know if you want to speak about that at all, any part of that in terms of understanding the relationship to place through the, through the domestic environment? The house was always a kind of um, our own, within, the, within what was possible within our budget, you know, like, the, you know, we wired up the floor as an antenna at one point. Um, there are all these things within the design that um, hold true in lots of ways to our aesthetic interests. The, the blackness of the house, we always thought as this sort of um, negative shadow of the bush and the burnt trees and things like that, like that it would be very empathetic and that it would double the shadows. Like I was always thinking about Raoul Ruiz's idea of like natural cinema, like, you know, how in the landscape, like sometimes like, I don't know, the angle between a rock can kind of shift the beam of the sun and then it makes some weird apparition somewhere else or or caustics in a canyon or something like that. So, so we were thinking about doubling the shadows. It does double the shadows and it, and it photographs really spectacularly actually. And you can also see the, um, the tilt of the earth in, in the front in the facade of the house. So the, the angles of the shadows of the trees change throughout the seasons and things like that. I think there's an interesting link there, though, between the house and then the telepathy anechoic chamber, you know, with this kind of doubling of the shadows and making it more dense and then the reduction, well, the removal of all sound in the anechoic chamber. Like, I did experience that when it was at the Energies 2014 at MCA, and um, it was a really unique experience in that, that stripping away of everything, you know, that you're just left with yourself, really. Um, do people explain the kind of the sensory experience of that to you in interesting ways? Yeah, people go wild. They have all kinds of experiences in there. And a lot of our, a lot of the works we make gather energy or they harness it. But this was sort of like trying to take it away in some senses, like say so the obvious things about living in an increasingly noisy world. So what is silence? Um, and that sort, those sort of questions, they're, they're the basic questions. But what was remarkable was actually in actually building it, we understood how it actually works. And how it actually works is absolutely like a miracle. So a lot of people think that um, if you like cover your room with egg cartons, <laughs> they'll absorb the sound somehow. But what happens with an anechoic tile is that it's the right shape and the right density of material to convert the sound from sound into heat. And so what it is is a transducer. So it transduces energy from one state into another. And to me, that's absolutely incredible because it's no, of course, it's no longer sound, it's heat. It's become something else. That to me is incredibly powerful. 
It might be why um, Alvin Lucy, as I'm sitting in a room, is such a curious work in which he records the sound of his speaking voice and he plays it back in the room over and over again, recording it and then playing it back again until the sound of his speaking voice disappears and there's just the resonances of the room remain. So the speaker transduces electrical energy into air pressure and it goes across the room, bounces around and the air pressure bumps into the microphone and turns into an electrical signal again and then it, bounce, then it comes back out the speaker and bounces around the room. And so it's this fantastic thing, I guess, about watching uh, how um, energy and sound is transformed from one state into another and how it's affected by the environment. Mm. Sound art has actually been very important, I guess, for everyone in, as a way of experimenting and understanding. Um, invisible things. Yeah, the invisible and also, you know, all these things like transduction and and um, synthesis and um, mm. the generative nature of some of the, you know, we've, we've, we've all started to experiment with, um, I guess these things both at a uh, technological level, but also at a sculptural level, at a material level. And um, sound is the great axis by which you can experience the results of your experiments. <laughs> Mm. It just like when you're talking, it's giving me the impression that it's just a matter of time before more things are able to be measured or experienced or transmitted into a, a frequency that we can relate to and understand. And for me, that's the kind of that's the only difference of that spectrum of what's able to be understood and what's not. And I think your work really, you know, works in this kind of space in between as well, especially in the um Karelian photography. When when did you when did you become interested in working with the energy of the plants in a visual? Yeah, that, that's a really funny story because I um so I have two really strong moments with the Karelian. Uh, when I was an adolescent, I we used to go on trips to the library after dinner, the local municipal library. And when you're 14, you either go to the sex education section or you go to the occult new age section. Um, and, um, you know, I saw those Kirlian images in books, you know, they were really big in the 70s. And because of Thelma Moss and um, her, her work, um, you know, she wrote this famous book called The Body Electric. And my mother also has a real strong interest in the occult and the afterlife and all those things as well. So, you know, there was all those influences. Um, and the Kirlian images always caught my imagination. And then when I met Joyce, um, I saw this um, exposed piece of 5-4 film sitting on her desk and it was kind of green. And I'm like, what's that? And she goes, oh, me and Ian tried to do a Kirlian photograph, but it didn't work. And I went, all right, oh, that's incredible and um you know like I'm immediately like oh you know this chick's awesome then the internet arrives proper 
and I just started to smash away at it. Like, because there are up on up in Byron Bay, you can have your curling and photograph taken and it's like a little Photoshop machine <laughs> hidden in a camera as the classic new age sham. Um, but I wanted to actually make one. So I really smashed away at it and I, I, I got nothing for a long time. And then eventually it came back that it's a high voltage circuit. And then I got a design from somewhere and then I realized that you could make it out of a really basic kit. Um, so the kit appeared and then it made it possible. And then I said to Joyce, ah, I'm gonna build a curly and camera. And she's like, well, I've already had a go at that and it's really pretty dangerous. So I'll just check to see if it's safe and you can just keep me out of it. And in fact, the only real time she got involved in it, she earthed it through the ground outside and I got a shock out of it. So, uh, but it is a really interesting technology because you have to build a, um, a capacitance plate, which is like a, it's like a thin tank that's full of saline water. And then, you, and then you're using high voltage around water, which is like salty water. It's like a recipe for disaster. And it scared me. Um, whenever I turned it on, it generates heaps of ozone. So it's quite poisonous. Uh, uh, for, one, for, the, for that um, series of photographs that people would have seen in the MCA and stuff, I really cranked it out against a deadline. And I think Joyce had gone to work and I had set it all up in the lounge room and I had so much ozone in the air that you could smell it. And then the feelings in my teeth started to like energize. Wow. That like high voltage field. And I'm like, I'm going to get killed here. And, uh, you know, like uh, I think universities are good at supporting research, but where are the super esoteric labs? That's where I, they're, they're the ones I want to find. I know, uh, me too. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, um, it'll be a bunch of artists hanging out in an old wind tunnel or something like that where it's happening. Um, but, and so I always understood it as a sort of pseudoscience, but nevertheless, what it does do is it creates plasma and plasma, the aura that you see around those plants is ionized gas, right? And that's what you see in a telescope surrounding, a, um, you know, like a hot star. Mm. They kind of, well, they visually link, and like what you're saying, I guess they technically link to transmission to the sun. But. Yeah, the, the idea that you would try to um, send a sound, like a, a piece of music out back out to the sun. And I was really going to um, try and do that. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, the method to get it to the sun is a little extreme. Um, it's possible to do it on the desktop so that by an artist um, but the problem is that it involved pulling apart your microwave so you'd have to build a microwave transmitter to get through the ionosphere um, and I consulted our friend Dan who's an amazing person he's this maverick character and I'm like uh, Dan I, uh, I want to transmit um, a, a musical melody to the sun. How are we going to do that? And then he explained it to me, and I, it's just so dangerous. Um, I'll find another way. Wow. I don't know if you want to, um, I guess, link back to kind of 
the the works with the the antennas and the measuring of the rocks and then also then the you know translating that energy into a, an aroma as well so when it's translated into aroma it's like it's like a sketch or a drawing it's like an interpretation you know you're mixing chemicals together and you're um and some of those classes of chemicals are based on on real world phenomena. So there's a whole class of ozone like smelling chemicals. But the remarkable thing about smell <laughs> is that it's also a frequency. So your nose is like a radio, um, your, your nose is like a radio receiver. So it's the energy of the molecule which sparks a receptor that creates the sensation of smell in your brain. So there isn't a good language for it. It's experiential. And so you know, I love the fact that um, aroma is this informational and expressive space. So chemicals express themselves to you. But they're, um, and they're certainly um, highly expressive and full of information, but that information doesn't necessarily very easily reside in language. It resides in experience. So... So, you know, suddenly the phenomena, there's so much phenomena that we experience, which is not about language. It's not to be articulated <laughs> in that way. And so much of the world runs on that. And I think that that's a really important discovery because, you know, there are people there, people in the world who totally believe that post-structuralism, for example, or semiotics is the center of the universe. It, 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 it's, it, you know, language has so much power, but there's so much of our experiences beyond language. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting link back to what you're talking about, you know, where are the esoteric, you know, art schools or the people doing this work? Because, I mean, as soon as you try to put language around it to discuss it and engender these senses in other people and, you know, maybe it's not possible in that you know, it's definitely not possible in the old way. <laughs> Do you know? It has. It's like needs a whole rethinking of how we, how we teach and how we learn. Yeah, so I think there's a space for us um, who are teaching in this area in the creative sphere to also just remember the black arts, these things that are not necessarily circumscribed intellectually. Mm. I'm just wondering, does the does the making of work that changed your antenna of yourself to experience them? You know, with all of David's work with smell, is that there's a vocabulary that arrives with this work, and um, David can he? Uh, <laughs> yeah, like I can pick. He can name particular molecules when we walk into a room. I think when it was sort of a notable moment when we walked into, we were at an opening somewhere and he came back out and he said, wow, this room is just full of, um, I don't know. Ethylene brassolate. <laughs> and that's the chemical that was yeah. sort of the dominant popular perfume that was in that room. Mm. If I've been... Um, doing a lot of work listening to particular kinds of noise, particularly electrical noise, I, um, I start to hear it. I start, I start to be able to identify it in the world just generally. Mm. Um, probably the most notable one was I, 
I, I did something in Germany and I was working with high voltage and I had a, had a problem and um, I spent a lot of time trying to solve the problem and the, it, the, the work was arcing. So it was sending an, a, a flame. It was, it was burning the air. So it was arcing. It was making that sound. Anyway, we were in a pub <laughs> and we were playing pool and I could hear it. And I was like, oh, my God, something's arcing. Mm. There's electricity arcing in this room. Mm. And I was looking around and I walked around and walked around and walked around. And then finally I saw it and I looked up into the air conditioning unit and there it was, a little spark it was jumping uh, on a kind of a loose wire in the air conditioning system. But it's such a tiny sound. But, you know, I think you get really tuned to that sort of thing. It's like, you know, listening, to, you spend a lot of time listening to fridge music. Um, mm. <laughs> you start to kind of go to people's houses and you're like, oh, wow, that's an amazing fridge you've got there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> or, you know, transformers when they don't quite sound like every other transformer. You know, it's like, <laughs> Do you know, the first day we went out to record the pagodas, <laughs> We, we plugged them in and we were listening to lots of white noise and stuff and not much was happening. That was all very predictable. And then I started to hear this ticking pulse and I suddenly had this like existential crisis. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like somehow we're listening to the center of the universe and it's just a clock. And, and the clock was just tick, 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 tick. And I was, I, you know, I was, I was jumping around like leaping and going, Joyce, 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 it's just a clock. And she's like, no, I, I don't know. And she's like, let me listen to it. And she's listening to it. And she's like, nah, there's something wrong with this sound recorder. It's, it's sending its pulse sync energy back into the system. And it's like, you know, sometimes you can hear your recording equipment. <laughs> I mean, we've got uh, better, you know, longer leads and things like that. We can get the raw recording equipment away from, from. But in the beginning, when we were first doing it, we had the recording equipment sitting right next to it, yeah. and then you realise that what you're actually listening to is the recording equipment. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty funny though, because it was just that kind of, it was almost Kafkaesque, you know, like it's like, oh my god, it's just like there's some bureaucratic clock. 